0: We're going to go back tonight to the book of John, where we left off this morning. Um, I'll I'll quickly recap for you where we left off, because I wanted to take the time to finish this message that we started this morning, Uh, looking at these first 14 verses in the uh, book or the chapter, or chapter 14 of John. And again, this comes... Um, at the very end of Jesus' life and ministry. This comes uh, after three years of him walking with the disciples and teaching them and showing them who he is. Um, And remember, John has said in his book uh, here in the end of the gospel, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and and that by believing you have life in his name. And here, the disciples have come to know and believe in who Jesus is um, we've seen we 've seen that confession in John chapter six. Uh, they understand who Jesus is as the Messiah now they don 't understand everything about the Messiah and his work they 're still struggling and grasping to understand those things. but Jesus is now preparing them for his departure to the cross and again, remember at the end of chapter thirteen John, uh, Jesus says in verse thirty one now is the Son of Man glorified. And he's talking about his, his death. He's talking about finishing the work for which he came, the redemption of mankind. And so here he shows them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we said this morning, that because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he alone can promise eternity in heaven and give eternal power for a disciple's life here on earth. The things that Jesus says here, this in this chapter, like most of the things, he says that he is the only one who's qualified to make these statements and these claims and call for these things. He's calling for personal belief and trust in himself and qualifying what is required for someone to enter eternity. And what he's doing is reinforcing for these 11 guys who are, who are there, because again, Judas is, is already gone, that you know the way to eternity. You know me. You know who I am. And in me you have confidence and hope, and and this is what will you will find, and and so he promises them um, the the entrance into eternity, right? He says uh, that there's an assurance of knowing Jesus in their lives, that, uh, that that they should not be troubled, they should not be tossed and, and torn by what they have what they experience or what they see or or hear but they should instead believe in him, believe in God and believe in me because the guarantee is that where he is, where Jesus is going to heaven, to this father's house, there they will be one day also because of the finished work. And again, he's going to prepare a place for them, not in that he's going to to undertake some construction project, but in that he is preparing the way for them by going to the cross. And then he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And then, of course, Thomas asks him, you know, we don't know. He says to him, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only truth of God. He is the only source of life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And Jesus says, you know, these are things that they should know from what they've experienced in their lives. And I think sometimes we look at that, and maybe, maybe we're quick to judge. We say, man, how do these guys not know that? But how many times has God been patient with us to reteach us the things we need to know and to, to work us through those things? And here is Jesus doing so with his disciples. And so to further reinforce this, to further reinforce who he is and what he is doing, we get to verses 8 through 11, And we see Jesus' identity with the Father. Again, understanding here that there is a deep truth here that Jesus and the Father are one. Right? God exists in three persons, but he is one God. And Jesus is God the Son. And all throughout his ministry, he has claimed equality with God the Father as he has done the works of God. So again, the disciples once again request reassurance. It says in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So the disciples have heard Jesus' words of reassurance. They've heard his exclusive declaration of himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only source of truth, he's the only giver of life, and now he is the only one in whom they can see the Father. He said in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And now it's Philip's turn to express doubt and to request assurance, and he asked that Jesus would show them the Father. If they could just get a glimpse of God, the Father, they would have everything they need, Philip says. Philip's request is not unlike Moses' request in the book of Exodus when he requests to see god's glory right the, the disciples are are enamored with if we could see the glory of God, if we could see God the Father revealed, we, we could see a we may call a theophany of God, they we would see God manifested before us, and we could then we could rest secure that everything we've heard is is true you know you think to to, you think, uh, even in what, what one of the gospel writers records, that John the Baptist's disciples came because John had doubts about Jesus and who he was and asked him, uh, what, what, is the, what do these things mean? Are you the Christ? And Jesus reassures John there with what he'll reassure his disciples with here in just a minute. But the disciples began to think, You know, if that would happen, we could face the road ahead. We would be at ease with what we heard from Jesus. But once again, Jesus reaffirms his disciple's faith in himself because it's not about some other proof they have what they need right there they have Jesus Christ and we see the reaffirmation of that identity in verses 9 through 11 he said Jesus said to him have i been with you so long and you still do not know me philip whoever has seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The disciples have enjoyed an incomparable privilege. And that will come up again at the end of John, uh, when Thomas' interaction with Jesus but just think of the blessing uh, of, uh, that the disciples have enjoyed spending three years with Jesus. When you think about a discipleship program, that's pretty intense, right? Here they have walked with the Son of God, they've had a front row seat to his incredible signs, they've experienced an inside track to his teachings. And here they are continuing to wrestle and grapple with what they hear and try to understand. And now Philip wants just a little more sight to inform his faith. And Jesus is calling for his faith in himself. Jesus' words really are tinged with sadness here in these verses. He he asks Philip, what else do you need? How can Philip not know who Jesus is by now? Jesus states that, That seeing him is seeing the Father. How is it that Philip requests to see the Father when he has walked with Jesus for so long? In a way, he asks, is it a a matter of belief? We have to understand that the mystery of the Godhead is a mystery indeed. I alluded to this a minute ago that, that we talk about this idea. Now, we never find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it is clearly taught in Scripture. That God exists in three persons who, who function in separate ways, but there is one God. Jesus and the Father are one. And, and Jesus then cannot say or do anything without the approval of the Father. So what Jesus says to his disciples and all who listen to him is said on the authority of God the Father. Jesus isn't making up an agenda of his own. He's not seeking his own glory He's doing that which pleased and glorified the Father as Jesus has shown before. And so, what does Jesus do here? Well, Jesus does here, again, something that only Jesus as God can do. You notice here, he says in in verse um, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That, that phrase, believe me, I mean, that's not, that's not a request. That's not a, you know, I'm imploring you or this. That's a command. That this is what is right. This is what you are to believe, who I am. He is commanding belief in himself. And you know what? You can't make believing something a necessary step of obedience unless you are God. God is the one who sets this forth. To reject Jesus is to disobey and disobedience brings consequences and separation from God. And that's one of the things that from an early age, if you grew up in a, in a home where parents taught you that what was right and what was wrong, you, you would hopefully become to understand that, that disobedience brings consequences in our lives. That's true in a, in a home setting. It should be true in a societal setting. And it's definitely true in the kingdom of God. That sin always brings consequences And disobedience, or I'm sorry, disbelief, rejection, unbelief and rejection of Jesus is disobedience to God. He says, believe in me. And the consequence of not believing in Jesus and not placing your faith in him is separation from God for eternity. And Jesus here reaffirms who he is and his call to them. He calls for belief in himself With as the word made flesh. And Jesus says, even if you won't believe, if you feel like the words are are hard to believe, look at the actions and the works. He says at the end of verse 11, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is Jesus' own personal testimony of John's purpose in his gospel. At the end of of, of the book of John, in John 20, we've read this before, and I, I alluded to it again a minute ago. Let me just remind you what John says. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of why he did the things he did. And Jesus says, listen, you've seen the works. You can believe me. You can trust me. Again, I don't know that it's necessary for us to understand here that the disciples are teetering on the edge of unbelief, falling away, and and, and not believing in Jesus for salvation. I believe they've truly come to that realization, but they're having a hard time acting on that belief and fully putting it into practice in their lives and resting in who Jesus is. And he's calling them again to once again observe the things that he has done and trust him. And rest in him. John, who wrote this gospel, and these fellow disciples who have been mentioned here in this passage, Thomas and Philip, and of course we know the others that are there, they all have a front row seat. They saw the things Jesus did. They heard the words that he spoke. I mean, John, when he writes uh, 1 John, talks about that which we have heard with our our ears, we have seen with our eyes, we have handled, our hands have handled. They, they They had an experience they experienced Jesus firsthand like none of us ever will, right? Because they saw Him in, the per, in person. And the things that Jesus says are worthy to be believed. And this sentiment here that the disciples struggle with is a sentiment that we feel and we hear sometimes in our world today. I mean, countless individuals have said things like, well, if John would just uh, I'm sorry, if, G, if God would just give me a sign." Or he would show me more than I would believe, or I would do this, or I would go here. And the truth is, God has given you everything you need in order to believe in him and trust him and follow him. And it's right here in the word of God. This is the perfect revelation of our perfect and holy God. It tells us of what he has done in this world, tells us who he is, it tells us who we are, and how we, we need him to have a relationship with him. And it continues to grow and change us in these things. As Peter, one of the disciples, would write in his letters, it gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And, and God not only gave his written word, he sent Jesus the living word, who we read about in the word of God, And the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, illumines the word of God, convicting us of sin and confirming the veracity of what we read. Everything you need to know to have eternal life is found in the word of God. And everything you need to know to live a life of a disciple is found in that same word of God. We were talking this morning in our Sunday school class about the timelessness of the Word of God. You know, culture changes, right? Culture changes because um, the, the way our world works and the way that things are, or the things that we have, or we we use, they change. The technology that we use today is vastly different than it was. than what it was 100 years ago, and let alone 2,000 years ago when the Word of God was written. The way we go about our daily lives is vastly different. But God's Word remains the same. Why? Because it is timeless. Because it addresses the real root of the issue, and that's the heart of man. And it, it is given by our sovereign God who is over all of these things. God does His incredible work in our hearts through his infallible word. <clears throat> and so yes, while sometimes perhaps we may be tempted to sit around and think, wow, if only I could have sat at the feet of Jesus at these men, what a wonderful thing. You can you sit right here and read the word of God. And you should sit and read the word of God and study it for yourself and ask God to teach you from his word. But if you will not spend time in the word of God, if you claim to be a Christian, you won't spend time with God, don't expect to grow into God. It just doesn't happen. Holiness and growth in things of God and, and growing closer to him and living for him, that doesn't happen by accident. No one accidentally stumbled into godliness. It comes through spending time with God and finding in him, in his word, a fresh vision of him. Each and every day. And Jesus says here. He, he's comforting his disciples once again. Um, with what? With himself. With believing in him. They're scattered. They're, they're, they're confused. They're, in a few hours they're really going to be in, in a mess. And in a bind. And Jesus says what, this is what you need to know. Believe in me. Trust in me. And Now as he finishes this this if we finish this section we see that not only does jesus call for this trust and this belief and shows this comfort but jesus makes great promises to these disciples we see that god does his work through believers through disciples and i want you to notice here that what jesus is going to say in these verses isn't limited. Again, it isn't limited to a certain place or a time. But notice what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, and again, this is a statement that this is a statement that Jesus uses that says, you know, you could count on this. You can, this is uh, you might have it in your Bible as verily, verily, it is the truth. You could take it to the bank, it'll hold up in a court of law. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me, stop right there. Does that tell you? who Jesus is talking about? Is he just talking about these 11 guys who are standing there? No. He's talking about anyone who places faith in him. That's at the time he lived, into the church age, all the way up into the, to where we sit here in 2023. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So not only do those who trust in Jesus have a promise eternity in the presence of God, but also a place in the plan of God in the present world that we live in. Jesus promises that those who trust in him will do the work that he does, and more than this, Jesus says, they will be greater works. And it's interesting. <clears throat> Why is that? What is the reason Jesus gives that they will do these works. What so comes at the end of verse 12? Before we jump back and talk about what those works are, let's look about the look at the reason that they will do them. Why does Jesus say that they will do these works? What's the end of verse 12 tell us? Because he's going to the Father. Because he's not going to be here anymore. He's he is now, don't take that to mean that he's not he's not working or he's not acting or he is not you know, he's stepped back, but he's not here. On this earth, doing these works, he's instead, through the Holy Spirit, given the disciples, given the followers of God, the power and the authority and the calling to do the work of the church, to do the things that he has called us to do. And because he is not here, the works that his followers will do are greater works, he says. So the question is what are these works? Because John has shown the works of Jesus throughout this gospel. And perhaps we begin to think about some of those works that John has recorded and other places have recorded, and we think, wow, it'd be really hard to top that, right? I mean, take five loaves and two fishes and feed ten to 15,000 people. That's a pretty big work, right? Would you say that's a great work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Walk across the water. That's a pretty great work, right? Um, How about resurrect a guy from the dead? Are you starting to kind of get the idea that, wow, that's going to be really hard to top that, right? What is John talking about? What is Jesus talking about, I mean, when he says you're going to do greater works than these? Now, interestingly enough, this is a different word here than is often used when John speaks of Jesus' authenticating miracles, such as the ones I just mentioned. What is the word he uses? He uses the word signs, right? Talking about the signs that Jesus will perform. Now, at the same time, this word works. It probably does encompass those signs that Jesus did, but it's not limited to miracles. So is Jesus speaking here, About miracles being worked by the disciples. Well, to an extent, it probably does. I mean, we know from the book of Acts that there were miracles that were performed by the disciples in the early formation of the church. I mean, we—you may recall the the account of Peter and John as they went up to the temple to pray, and they met this lame guy who was there. By lame, I mean he couldn't walk. Not that he wasn't any fun, okay. and they met this guy who couldn't walk, and he asked them for, for money, and they said, what? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he did, right? God used them to perform this miracle. However, we, we understand from Scripture that as the canon of Scripture closed and the formation of the church was, was, had taken place, that, that these sign gifts that these apostles exercised, they, came to an, they were coming to an end. That God doesn't use people in that way necessarily. Now, does God still do great and mighty works? Yes. So the question still is, what is the work that Jesus is talking about here? Well, the greater work that Jesus speaks of is the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. And in that way, there are greater works that are promised by Jesus that are truly seen. You see, when Jesus was on earth, there were those who believed in him, right? I mean, We have 11 guys in this chapter, if nothing else. And we know we have others that are mentioned in the Gospels. But in reality, the vast majority of people, what? They rejected him. We think about all the religious leadership of Israel and people who fall, fell under their influence. Now, that was not unexpected. In fact, the Old Testament predicted that. This is what was going to happen. Yet, after his ascension, the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which we call the gospel, began to spread rapidly. In fact, Jesus says, as we said, because he went to the Father, his disciples would do these greater works. The Holy Spirit would come after Jesus ascended to the Father, and the opening of the church age would take place in the book of Acts. Remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, and how many people were added to the church? Do you know? 3,000 people. Now, I don't know if Brother Jeff has ever had 3,000 people come forward an in invitation before. But that's an incredible work, isn't it? That's a, can we say it this way? A greater work. And again, it is not the disciples, it is the disciples who are used by God to do that. It's God doing the work. While he was here on earth, Jesus spoke where? To which people did Jesus speak? Primarily to the Jews. You understand? Jesus did not go outside of Palestine, he did not go outside of Israel in his ministry. During the formation of the church, again, as you read in the book of Acts, where do you see the gospel going forth? It leaves Israel and goes where? Everywhere. You have Acts chapter 10 and, and Cornelius, right? You have Paul and his missionary journeys traveling all over the place giving the message of the gospel. It leaves the Jews and goes forth unto the Gentiles. And we saw a little bit of that in Jesus' own ministry, but primarily his ministry, as was was foretold, was he came into his own, and his own received him not. Jesus would no longer be on on earth in a physical body. Instead, he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the disciples, Jesus said, have years ahead of them to work for the kingdom of God. And this is an amazing thing. That here are 11 ordinary men from various ordinary backgrounds, yet Jesus promises they will be used by God to do extraordinary things. And that is precisely what happened. You get to the book of Acts, and there's a phrase used, it says, these men have turned the world upside down. And what is the message that turned the world upside down? It's the gospel. It's the greater work. Now they, in and of themselves, were incapable of doing these things. They, didn't, they couldn't force anyone to accept the message of Jesus. They couldn't conjure up boldness in and of themselves Jesus promised they would do great works. And so what did he send to empower them to do those great works? He sent the Holy Spirit. You see, up until that point, the Holy Spirit had not come to indwell the hearts of believers. So now Jesus was, no, Jesus was not there beside them walking through them. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God lived within them to empower them to do these things. And he lives within every believer. That's a wonderful thing. The greatest work is the work of the gospel. It is the fulfilling of the great commission to go and make disciples. And again, I know we've hammered, we've hammered that one uh, off and on again. But understand, the, the great commission is not go and force decisions or go and make converts. It's go and make disciples teaching others how to be followers of God. Now, it begins with salvation, and it continues on throughout our lives in sanctification. And so if you are a follower of God, the same promise is made to you today. You have been given the privilege of doing the work of God. And again, the sign gifts have have passed away But the work of God isn't limited to physical miracles. The greatest work of God is the miracle of regeneration. And the incredible calling and privilege in the life of a believer is that we are called to be used by God in this process. We share the gospel and disciple believers, trusting in God's power and his spirit to do his work. And when he does that work through us, it is an amazing thing. if you have never had, as a Christian, the opportunity and the privilege to lead someone else to the Lord, you should put that on your prayer list. God, I want to be used in that way. Now be careful what you pray for. Because God will give you those opportunities. If you stay faithful to him and you you genuinely seek that. And it's an amazing, incredible thing. Jesus has gone to the Father and entrusted his disciples with the ongoing mission. But... That doesn't mean we have no contact with God. In fact, Jesus says now, we have been given the incredible gift of prayer in our lives. We see that in verses 13 and 14, as Jesus makes promises about the prayers of disciples. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus finally reassures his disciples here, the, the end, the last thing of this, this passage, that though he is not present in their midst in bodily form, he nevertheless will continue to supply for their needs, listening to and answering their prayers. Again, for three years, he has met all of the needs they have, right? I mean, Jesus, think about this, Jesus even helped Peter pay his taxes, Remember that story? When he needed the temple tax and he, went, he said, go down and catch a fish and inside the fish would be a coin, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's provision, right? Jesus says he will continue to provide for his disciples through prayer. One of the greatest assurances as a Christian you have is this, God hears and listens to and answers your prayers. That's a wonderful thing. Now, perhaps again at first glance, you wonder what Jesus is saying here. Because it says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Is Jesus promising to answer anything we pray as long as we couch it with in Jesus' name? Well, I think we need to understand and back up here. This in my name that Jesus is talking about is not a magic formula or an incantation. Right? That as long as you say in Jesus' name, it will come true. It is instead a request in our prayers for the will and the work of God to be done. And so, again, and, and we also need to understand why Jesus, why Jesus promises this. Jesus promises to do these things for what reason? He says there in verse 12 that... Um, I'm sorry, verse 13, that the Father may be what? Glorified in the Son. So Jesus is going to answer these prayers in order to glorify the Father. So if we ask for that which doesn't glorify the Father, does Jesus grant the request? Well, I believe the answer you have from this passage is no. If it doesn't glorify God, it, doesn't, it isn't answered. It isn't given. It's answered, right, but not in the way may we... It would be. It is important that in prayer we subject our desires, wants, and expectations to the eternal plans of our eternal God. So, first, let us let may the things we pray about be that which lines up with the will of God. If this basic requirement is not met, then we can be assured that God does not answer these requests so i know this seems like a basic principle but but we need to understand praying for sinful things is obviously outside the will of god right if you if you said you know something like god i pray today that uh, when i go to school that uh, i'll be able to see somebody else's answers on the test that's not a prayer we should be praying okay because why that doesn't line up with the will of god Praying for personal gratification of a fleshly desire or a want, by the way, also isn't bringing glory to God. If we're praying things just so we'll be happy, that isn't praying for the glory of the Father. Look, I don't want to step on any toes, but if you're praying for Michigan football to win the national championship, should you feel better about yourself? Probably not praying for the glory of God, okay? If we're praying for this to happen or that to happen so that, so that I'll be gratified or happy in life. That we're not seeking the will of the Father. We're seeking what? We're seeking our own self. Okay? Now, please don't walk out here saying, Pastor said if we pray for Michigan, then they're going to lose, okay? It's not a guarantee the other way, right? But understand that, that these aren't the kinds of prayers that Jesus is talking about here. So, these things that we pray for, though they may not be inherently wrong, we should be understanding where they fall and what we're praying for. What we're doing is we're submitting ourselves to the will of our Almighty God. If it is God's will for those requests to be answered in the way in which we seek, it will be answered. You know, as a Christian, you have probably prayed for something you felt was not only good, but surely within the will of God, only for it not to be answered in the way you thought. You ever had that experience before? Yeah, okay, thank you. One person, I appreciate that. You know, maybe you prayed for a loved one who was sick, and they, they never get better, right? You pray for someone to be delivered from a trial. You pray for something in your life that you, are, you say, I, I'm giving this to the will of, this, is, this is, is, Lord, this seems to be your will and the right thing, and it isn't answered in that way. This is not because God does not listen, but because he is sovereign. In that moment, what will we do and what will we trust? Well, God calls us to greater faith in himself that you may see how his answer glorifies himself better than you could have imagined. So what we are praying when we pray for things in the name of Jesus, we are telling God we want to see him do his work in his way on this earth. And we will follow him. It is also, I mean, it is setting the proper state of mind and heart for ourselves that we may do the will of God. It is an acknowledgement that it is through Jesus alone we can receive these things and see God work. That's another major part of this. It says, Whatever I ask you in my name, if you ask me anything in my name, notice what Jesus is saying. He's not saying if you ask anything and you have enough merit in the disciple merit status, then you can get that. Because we don't have anything to bring to the table. God doesn't owe us anything. Our behavior doesn't dictate whether God listens to our prayers or answers our prayers. And sometimes maybe we think that, at least subconsciously. We, we, we're praying for something and we think, okay, I really want to see God answer this, so I'm going to act in a certain way this week so I can see God answer by prayer. And if you have ever thought that, you don't understand what Jesus is saying here. And if you've ever thought that, don't feel bad because we've all done that. We begin to pray like it all depends on us. Okay? I, I prayed now I've got to do the right things, right? God uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus is the only way to God, therefore he is the only way for our request to come before God. And God answers prayer, and his answers always bring himself the honor and glory he deserves. So what do we do? We pray. We pray to our Heavenly Father. We seek his will and his way. We come in the name of Jesus, who is the only way to God. And we seek his help in our lives. We willingly lay down our own personal ambitions and desires and agendas at his feet. And because of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, we have access to God to do this. In Jesus, we have the promise of eternity and hope for the present, living for God's kingdom in his strength. So this is what Jesus tells his disciples. That you have assurance that you can depend on me, and trust in me, and pray to me. And I will listen, and I will answer. I will do that which glorifies the Father. Which at the end of the day is the greatest thing that we can do, is bring glory to God. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he alone can promise eternity in heaven and give eternal power for a disciple's life here on earth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That is good news for troubled hearts. This is a call for our trust in him, a call for our obedience to him, and a call for our work for him. One day he will return, gathering his own to be with him in heaven. That'll be a glorious day. In Jesus, we see the Father as he says. His actions and his attributes that Jesus has those things that we see in him are not just a reflection of what God is like those are God's actions and attributes we read in God's word the revelation of these things and they challenge our hearts we can be comforted by his identity we are called to serve him because of that identity and so God's kingdom is served best by faithful servants. We, as disciples, are promised to be used in this great work if we follow and submit to God. So let us be faithful to engage in the work of God's kingdom, seeking God's glory. Because of Jesus, we have access to the Father, a guarantee that our prayers will be heard and answered in accordance with God's will and his glory. So let us pray. Let us come Boldly before God's throne of grace seeking God's wondrous goodness and powerful workings. Perhaps this is one of the greatest comforts of a disciple's life. Your father hears you and he cares for you. We can trust the way, the truth, and the life for he is worthy. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Thank you for the message of Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have confidence to come before you, not to seek our own will and our own ways and our own gratification, but to seek the the exaltation of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be willing to submit ourselves to that. Lord, help us in our own lives as disciples to seek the exaltation of the kingdom of God, whatever that means in our lives, whether it's taking up those actions that we have neglected or putting off those things we have taken to ourselves that aren't reflections of the kingdom, and help us to live for you, empowered by you. Help us to show others the Father, through our words and actions, and help us to be faithful to give the message of the gospel. May we be used in a great way to do greater works for the kingdom of God as you promised to those who follow you. Be with us now as we close our service. We pray that you would um, get the honor and glory as we close. In your name we pray.